You take your Bible with me and turn to the Gospel of John. Uh, We're diving back into John's Gospel this morning, uh, and we're picking up halfway through John chapter 3. It's been a couple of months since we've been in John's Gospel. Uh, We we took a bit of a hiatus uh, because our family uh, welcomed a baby, and uh, also because... uh, because uh, we wanted to step aside and rethink as a congregation about how we could live the gospel actively in our, in our lives throughout the course of the last six weeks. We thought about that um, and as a bit of a refresher to what we and how we want to be engaging our culture, our community as Christians. But this morning, we're getting back into John's Gospel, and uh, and as I expect that we'll do several times, we'll probably take a hiatus here and there uh, from, from John's Gospel to focus on some other things, because uh, there are 21 chapters in John's Gospel, and so far we've only made it through two and a half, um, or excuse me, three and a half, and so, uh, so that's probably just the way that things are going to get to work. John chapter 3 this morning, we're going to look at verses 22 through 36. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, I still see some on the back table back there. Stand up, grab one of those. It's good for you to have the words that I'm about to read in front of you. And if you do have one of those black hardcover Bibles from the back table back there, uh, you'll find the sermon text on page 1055. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there is no greater gift than we, that we can offer to you than uh, a copy. So underneath the giving box in the back there, there's a handful of Bibles back there. Please feel free to pick one of those up and take it and to use it, make use of it, share it, whatever it is that, that uh, however you could make best use of it, please, please, please take that with you and uh, engage with it daily. Um, the Lord does communicate to us who he is through his word, and uh, that is a great, great gift that we should not, as God's people, take for granted. So, John chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 22, and I'll read through the end of the chapter, which is verse 36. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon, near Salem, because the water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourself bear witness, or bear me witness, that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, 
but the wrath of God remains on him. This text is an exaltation. And if you're reading the, if you're reading the, uh, the, the ESV like I am, and you look at that header, these are not inspired. The headers are added by our publishers later. But you'll see that John the Baptist exalts the Christ as the header. This is a clear exaltation because as we've seen so many times in John's gospel, if you think with me real hard to a couple months ago, back to all the way to September of last year, if you think about the way that John's gospel is constructed, it's exaltation after exaltation. It's all of these high and really important thoughts about who Jesus is and what he came to do and the fact that he is the only one who could do these things and the only one who could accomplish what he uh, was set to accomplish in his life. Our society, our culture sometimes um, takes Jesus and boils him down. We'll see this as throughout the course of our, our time this morning, but boils him down to a good man or a nice person or someone to be emulated. But the reality is that John's gospel sets out right out of the gate uh, and desires to say, this is more. He is more than just a one man who came and had some nice teaching and who could be emulated over here in this area of our life. This is someone who is much, much more. That's what John has done over and over and over again in, uh, in his gospel. And if you look back to uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, I would encourage you to read through that this week. Look at the first 18 verses in John's gospel, and you will see very clearly that you cannot go any further without the full acknowledgement that Jesus Christ is more than just a good teacher, a nice guy, someone to be emulated in part of your life. But he is the Lord over all creation. He is the one that stands above all things. He is the only one who comes from heaven. He is the God-man. He is the Messiah. And what we're going to explore this morning is that he is absolutely supreme. He is superior over all things. As people, we're conditioned. And this is, this is cultural, but it's also just the way that we are. Um, we're conditioned to make comparisons. Comparisons are good. They're helpful. They're helpful things. They're an easy way to measure success or failure based on just any set of criteria. They're an easy way to understand how to get the best deal on a consumer product, right? Uh, it's the best way to understand if you get a good deal on your house or not. It's to understand uh, comparisons. Comparisons can be good things, and they can help you save money, and they can help you understand that when you buy a vacuum, that it's, it'll last more than, than a couple of years. But comparisons also uh, can be dangerous. Uh, they can be dangerous for us in a lot of different ways, especially when they're, when they're twisted, and especially in a world that, that likes to fabricate things and likes to, uh, likes to show us the best versions of everything. So in a world of social media, we tend to look at pictures of people's homes or people's cars or, or even something like their bodies, and, and we begin to wish that those things belong to us. We begin to wish that those things were actually ours, that we looked that way, and we could just get rid of that belly fat, or that our, our house would be clean like an Instagram picture. <laughs> this type of comparison leads to jealousy or covetousness. What we see this morning in this text is a comparison being made, and an earthly one. But the question that we need to ask before we get really into the depths of this, the, this text 
is what if the comparison is being drawn between something that is so vastly superior, so clearly superior, not just staged or fabricated superior, but so vastly superior in its very essence that you couldn't do anything but say, so no summer league softball player, if you play summer league softball, would ever compare himself to Pete Rose, one of the greatest hitters, if not the greatest hitter of all time. Nobody would make a beef Wellington one time successfully and, uh, and compare themselves to Gordon Ramsay, right? You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't, you wouldn't compare yourself to the standard if you did one thing that they did with mild success one time. Again, as we look back in John's Gospel this morning, as we look at this text, we see the theme that comes up, and I alluded to it out of the gate, but we see this theme that comes up over and over again throughout John's Gospel, and that's Jesus' uniqueness. His uniqueness. If, if you think back on Easter, we explored John 3.16 together. And there's a little word embedded in John 3.16 that we oftentimes gloss over, but the word only is in there. It's right in the middle. God's only Son. And that word only, that we translate only there, really emphasizes Jesus' uniqueness. That there is no one else like him. And there is no one else that even comes close. He is vastly superior. He is clearly supreme. And again, if you go back to those first 18 verses and read through those this week, you'll find a ton of details about Jesus and would be insane to think that anyone ever throughout all of time could even come close to what's being described there. Eternal, the word of God, the agency of creation, the full revelation of God's plan of redemption. And the list goes on. He, Jesus is God. And we see here this morning in this text that John the Baptist realizes who Jesus is and just how important he is. Even Jesus' own disciples, the disciples of John the Baptist, and Jesus' own disciples were just beginning to wrap their heads around this. And John the Baptist has a clear understanding of Jesus' vast superiority here in this text. In a way that no one else has so far outside of John the Gospel writer who has had a, a solid like 60 years, 70 years between his walking with Jesus and to reflect. John the Baptist here, though, in the moment, has a clear picture and gives us a great understanding of Jesus' vast superiority and his supremacy. There is no comparison. There is no competition. And when I say that Jesus' Jesus supremacy is absolute, I just mean exactly what Google is going to tell you when you, define, or when you ask it to define supremacy which is the stater condition of being superior to all others in authority, power, or status. Now, Jesus is superior, vastly superior to everyone for all of time in all three of those categories, in, in power and status and authority. And we're actually going to see that in this text. Um, Jesus' supremacy is absolute, and he is unrivaled. So look with me at your Bibles this morning. Look at the text itself. And I'm going to th- we're going to walk through three things. Three things this morning. First, the conversation that's happening. Uh, secondly, the, the, uh, um, secondly is the correction that John the Baptist offers to the thinking of his own disciples. And then finally, 
the commentary that, that John the Gospel writer, who's different than John the Baptist, John the Gospel writer gives us at the end of the chapter, especially related to Jesus' supremacy. So, first thing to note is the conversation. So, John, the gospel writer, sets the scene, right? He sets the scene. Jesus has just finished up having his conversation with Nicodemus, in the middle of which we get John 3.16, in the middle of which we are told all about what it means to have new life in Christ, uh, that the Spirit blows on those who it, he will, and that those, have, those individuals have new life in Jesus Christ. And now, we get to a, a, bit, of, a bit of narrative. We're, we're told what happens after that event. And in verse 22, we're told that Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. Now, we also learn that John the Baptist, when you see John here, is going to be John the Baptist. John also was baptizing at Anon, or Enon near Salem um, because of the water. The water was plentiful, it says. Um, and so he chooses to, to stay there and to, to baptize. And then we're told in verse 24 that, uh, spoiler alert, John's going to get thrown in prison a little bit later. John the Baptist is going to get thrown in prison a little bit later. So, uh, but we'll get there. This is before that, that event. So John the Baptist's public witness is still going on. Um, and then look at verse 25. Now, this is where the conversation begins between John the Baptist's disciples and a Jew, and they start this conversation about purification. Now, we're told that the conversation was about purification, but there's not a real whole lot of, of comment about that after that verse. Because in verse 26, they ask this question, Rabbi, or, or they make this statement rather, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, they're referring to Jesus, right? He who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. So, what they're doing right here is pointing out the success that Jesus is having. Look at his ministry. Um, and it would be safe to say that John the Baptist's ministry, John the Baptist's uh, message was uh, was losing followers to Jesus as Jesus and his ministry grew in popularity. Now, what they say here is a really relatable moment for us. It's a really relatable moment, and, and I think uh, for a handful of reasons, but let me point out this one. John the Baptist's disciples saw that the success of Jesus' ministry growing numerically, likely, at, again, at the expense of John the Baptist's. And we'll learn that the problem was the way that they were measuring success. John the Baptist's disciples were measuring success incorrectly. And there's no problem in, in wanting to be successful. But that desire to be successful needs to use the proper standard for success. And so the moment is relatable because we usually define success in, in our culture, in ourselves, just the way that John the Baptist's disciples do. We define success as having more than probably the next guy. It's rooted in comparison. How do we have more than the next person? And we may not say that explicitly, but we feel successful when we, are, when we have more. And when things begin to diminish in our lives and when things kind of uh, get squeezed out because you have a big bill to pay or because, uh, because the, the, the stock market takes a hit and your retirement account takes a hit, um, you feel it. 
you begin to feel maybe like you're not as successful as you had hoped you would be. This happens in the church a lot. Uh, most people in the pews, uh, m- most people in the pews think in churches across our country and even across the globe think that more money in the giving box and more people in the pews means more success. But we shouldn't measure success like that. That's not the way that we should measure success as a church. Because when we do begin to only care about those things, we only begin to care about nickels and noses, as one of my seminary professors would say. And the more nickels and noses we have, then, then the more successful we are as a church. But the reality is that doesn't just happen in the church. It also happens in our personal lives all of the time. All of the time. We define success by comparing ourselves to others who are in similar situation to us. Maybe they have a similar career path, or maybe they have a, a, a similar uh, structure in their home, or whatever it may be. It usually has to do with material, but sometimes it has to do with careers and levels of influence, status. We often use the word blessed when we talk about people who have a lot of those things. But when we choose to measure things in this way, we show how little of the big picture we see. We show how just how bound we are to our our temporary little world or kingdom that we feel like we've constructed. And what we see here is when John the Baptist's disciples give the report that they do, they display how they measure success. And again, can be summed up in just two words, having more. Having more. If that's wrong. It's wrong now and it was wrong then. And so John the Baptist, again, has the proper perspective. And so he's going to give the proper perspective to his disciples and we get to become the beneficiaries of this conversation. We get to be the beneficiaries of understanding how we should measure success. And so that's the second thing I want you to see this morning is the correction that John the Baptist offers. Look at verses 27 through 30. We're going to focus on a couple things here in these four verses. He points out right away that his disciples are thinking wrongly about the growth in Jesus' following. The answer is simple here too, and again, we'll flush this out in a moment, but the answer is simple. Jesus is greater than John the Baptist. Jesus is greater than John the Baptist. And not only that, he's greater than anything. He's greater than anyone, anything, for all of time. Uh, Look at the metaphor that John the Baptist chooses to use here. Verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. It would be weird to go to a wedding where the focus was the best man. It would be really weird. Um, where the groom was mostly overlooked, or the bride for that manner. And where the best man got up to give his speech at the, at the uh, reception and only talked about himself. Um, it would be weird if everyone brought the best man a gift at the wedding. <laughs> 
The groom and his bride should be the center of attention, not the best man. That's the picture that John the Baptist paints for us. He's like, the wedding is coming, and I'm not the groom. I'm not the one that you should be exalting. And I'm not the one that those people who are going over to be baptized by Jesus' camp should be exalting. I'm not the one, he says. He illustrates his role properly. And just like he said earlier in John's Gospel, he's going to reiterate it, and he's going to say, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He has a defined job. He has a defined role, and he's done or is beginning to accomplish. That role is being uh, fulfilled in his own life. And he's saying, I, uh, my, it's not about me. This is not about me. Just like the best man rejoices when the, with a groom at the groom's wedding, so John the Baptist rejoices at the arrival of Jesus, who is the Messiah. He's the Christ. And when some of those people who are following him start following Jesus, that's better. John the Baptist's role wasn't to overshadow Jesus or even to rival him. Instead, John the Baptist's role was to prepare the way, to prepare the way for Jesus, to set the stage for Jesus. That John the Baptist is the setup guy and Jesus is the closer. John the Baptist wasn't there to get honor for himself, but to ensure that Jesus got it all. And then we have the most famous verse in this section of text, in verse 30, where John the Baptist says, He must increase, but I must decrease. This is the natural order. It's the natural order of things. It would have been contrary to the natural order of things for John the Baptist to highlight himself. We know that John the Baptist had a big following, but it was not meant to last. Because ultimately it wasn't about him, it was about Jesus. I love, I love what uh, J.C. Ryle says about this 19th century pastor. says this, he says, In this sentence, John the Baptist tells his complaining disciples, I love you, he just calls them what they are, complaining disciples that it is right and proper and necessary that Christ should grow in dignity and that he himself should be less thought of. He was only the servant. Christ was the master. He was only the forerunner and the ambassador. Christ was the king. He was only the morning star. Christ was the sun. The idea implied appears to be that, that of the stars gradually fading away as the sun rises after the break of day. The stars do not perish or become less, but they pale and become invisible before the superior brightness of the great center of light. The sun does not really become larger or really increase in brightness, but it becomes more fully visible and occupies a position in which it more completely fills our vision. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he is all of the things that John's gospel has described about him so far, and he has been all of those things for all of eternity. But now, in this moment, as the sun comes up over the horizon and we see it for what it is, that's the comparison here. We see it for what it is. We see Jesus as 
vastly superior. We see him as absolutely supreme. John the Baptist shouldn't have drawn attention to himself. He didn't. And he shouldn't because he's a mere man when the God-man stood on the Judean countryside. Now Jesus, right now, in this moment, is ruling and reigning in heaven over all of creation. He has the name that is above every name. He died and is alive forevermore, and he holds the keys to death and Hades. This is the God that we worship this morning. He is the one who is... Friends, He is real. He is there in this moment. He has your name. If you are in Him, He has your name on His lips and He whispers it to the Father. We get so detached from that thinking in our secular world that has so little to do with God, so little to do with the person of Jesus Christ. And even if we do have some spirituality about us, what we do is we talk about Jesus like he's He's a throwaway. We make a doll of Him and call Him Buddy. But Jesus is the first and the last. He is the beginning of the end. And as real as your neighbor to your left and your right is this morning, Jesus is in heaven bodily speaking to the Father on your behalf and on mine. This is not a mere man. This is not someone who should be given lip service. This is not someone who we should devote 10 quick minutes in the morning to and then go about the rest of our lives without considering who he is. He is vastly superior. He is absolutely supreme over all of creation, including you and me. How could we ever think? How could we, along with uh, the John the Baptist disciples, ever think that we should increase? more than Jesus Christ in anything. We're endlessly arrogant to think that we, what we have and who we are is to be used for our purposes and not his. Look at verse 27. Even how John starts off, John the Baptist starts out by saying, or giving his correction to his disciples. He says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. The understanding that Jesus is greater than John the Baptist, that John the Baptist was now speaking to his disciples, was given to his disciples from heaven. The the truth that Jesus Christ is vastly superior and absolutely supreme is given from heaven. This is not just the gifts of material that we have. It's not just the gifts of the skills that we possess. This is every single thing that you have ever been given in your life. (laughs) It's been given from heaven. And it's to be used to see Jesus increase. God is the source of everything. And John the Baptist knew it would be the epitome of foolishness to seek his own personal success numerically when the God of the universe who secured an eternal inheritance for his people from eternity past stood a short distance away. What a foolish endeavor that would have been. What a silly, silly thing that would have been. Rather, John the Baptist needed to measure his success by fulfilling his role by doing that which God had called him to, to decrease. This was the success of John the Baptist. 
So this is the correction that John the Baptist offers his disciples again. Jesus must increase and he must decrease. The final thing that I want you to see this morning in this text, though, is verses 31 through 30. Well, you're going to say 36. Um, and we'll include that here at the end. But, but the, the, especially 35. And this is the commentary. Because you'll see the quotation marks in your Bible end at the end of verse 30. They go away. So now, John the Baptist has finished speaking, and now John the Gospel writer is going to give us some additional thoughts about, about what John the Baptist has just told his disciples. Three things. There are three things that we've explored. Um, first is the conversation that the disciples had. The second is the correction that John the Baptist gives, and now this is the commentary. John the Gospel writer is going to give us a better understanding of what's going on here. And the way he's going to do that in verses 31 through 36 is to ensure that we understand what just happened. He wants us to know without a doubt what just happened between John the Baptist and his disciples. And he does that by communicating three truths about Jesus to highlight Jesus' uniqueness, his vast superiority, and his absolute supremacy. So three ideas. What you need to know is, these are three ideas why John the Baptist should decrease and Jesus should increase, and subsequently why we should decrease and why Jesus should increase. The first is this. Well, let me give you the three. The three are this. First, that Jesus is from above. Secondly, that Jesus brings the truth. And third, that Jesus has been given all authority. Now, don't don't throw these away. These are, these are the three reasons that John the Gospel writer says that we must dis- decrease while Jesus increases. And again, they highlight his uniqueness and they highlight his supremacy. So first, Jesus is from above. Now, now we saw that Jesus made this claim himself. If you remember back earlier into chapter 3, Jesus actually makes this claim himself when he's speaking to Nicodemus. Uh, he says all other people have their beginnings on earth. They have biological parents. Uh, they are, their conception, and their, their, it marks their beginning. But he, Jesus is from above. Yes, Jesus was born of a woman, but Jesus has existed from eternity past. And this makes Jesus unique. No, no other time in human history has someone walked the face of the earth who has existed for eternity past. We all have a concrete, definitive beginning, and we are, we're born here on earth, and we will continue here on earth. Jesus came down from heaven. Now, this matters because, again, this explains Jesus' superiority, and it explains Jesus' supremacy. Jesus has no rivals. No one else has ever done this. That's important. The Guardian published an article in 2014 called, Who's the Most Significant Historical Figure? I'm sure they put a ton of thought into it. Not really, that was sarcasm. But um, at the top of the list is, rightfully, Jesus. Um, And then here are the next nine. Napoleon, Muhammad, William Shakespeare, Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, Adolf Hitler, Aristotle, Alexander the Great, Thomas Jefferson. Now, on that list, a couple of those men sought to be godlike through some of their activities. Um, but no one outside of Jesus claimed to have existed for eternity past. No, none of them did that. No one said they did, and no one actually did. So, 
Yes, Jesus should be number one on the list. But again, this is the way that the world thinks about Jesus. He's an influential guy, right? But the way that the world should be thinking about Jesus is that he should be the only one on the list. Because apart from Jesus Christ, there are no historical figures to speak of. Apart from Jesus Christ, there would be no history. Because Jesus is the most historical, significant historical figure because of what we learn in verse 3 of chapter 1. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made, including history and all historical figures. These are the claims. This is the audacity that, that John claims. Jesus from above. He's from heaven. And therefore, John the Baptist, and all of us for that matter, must decrease. The second thing, though, that you'll see here is that Jesus brings the truth. Jesus brings the truth. Now, later in the book, we're going to learn that Jesus, or that Jesus is the truth. Um, but we're not there yet. So look at verses 32 and 34. He is from above, so he bears witness to what he has seen and heard in heaven. And then, whoever receives his testimony sets a seal to this, that God is true. Jesus is bearing witness about the truth of who God is that he brought down from heaven. He bears witness about the truth of everything, the realities of our universe, the realities of our world. Jesus bears witness to what he's seen and heard in eternity past, in the wisdom of God, who is three, Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus bears witness to all of it. And he comes to herald the good news about the redemption that's going to come through him. He's not only going to talk about it, but he's the one who's going to finalize it. And even though Jesus comes from heaven and brings God's message directly to his people, verse 32 says that no one received his testimony. Why no one? Well, because apart from God revealing, opening eyes, giving life, we can't receive this truth about who Jesus is and what he did on the cross. And so there's clarification in verse 3. Whoever receives his testimony sets the seal, sets his seal to this, that God is true. To those whom God reveals truth, receive the truth. And they acknowledge that it only comes through Jesus. And since Jesus is the one who reveals the truth of God, he's the only one who reveals the truth of God, John the Baptist and all of us, for that matter, must decrease. The final thing I want you to see here is that Jesus has been given all authority. Jesus has been given all authority. It's simply put in verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. What, what more do you need? God the Father has given everything to Jesus Christ, authority over all things. And again, Jesus will say it over and over again throughout the Gospels, most famously in Matthew 28, 18, where he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. If you don't believe that Jesus has authority over all things, including you and your life, then, then this verse operates, these two verses here operate as a, a dramatic corrective. All authority has been given in heaven and earth to me, and... The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Since Jesus has been given authority over all things, John the Baptist and you and I, for that matter, must decrease. So as we wrap up this morning, 
you'll see that we've really latched on to that, that verse, verse 30, where John the Baptist says, he must increase, but I must decrease. And the argument that, again, is being made here if, is that if Jesus is who he says he is, if he is absolutely supreme in the way that he says he is absolutely supreme, the fact that he's from above and the fact that he brings the truth and in the fact that he's been given all authority, then just like John the Baptist, friends, we must decrease while he increases. Now, what does that mean practically for you and I? What does that mean practically for us? Because we fall into the trap of wanting to increase. Our desire to increase shows up in a lot of ways. We want to be well thought of. We want to be in control of our destiny. We want to chart our own course. We just want to be left alone. We want to define our own success. But success isn't defined by increasing in the way that the world tells us. Again, success is defined here in what John the Baptist does, is decreasing. We must decrease did we get our heads around that this morning? That, that our, our measurement for success is getting out of the way so that Jesus Christ can be seen clearly. What should shine through us isn't what we are or what we have become or what we have achieved, but should be a clear reflection of the person of Jesus and what he's done. So we must be resolved together. Jesus must increase, and since that's true, we must decrease. And so the question that I'll just pose to you, and I'll give you a couple of examples, but the question I'll pose to you and let you work out this week is this. What does, it, what does decreasing look like in your life? What does getting out of the way and reflecting the person of Jesus Christ look like in your life? What does it mean for your marriage? Husbands, does your love for your wife reflect the sacrificial, selfless love of Jesus? Are, are you seeking your own at every turn? Wives, do you submit to your husband, yielding to his God-appointed headship in the home? Do you respect your husband? Or do you undermine him? We've asked the same question about our singleness. What is decreasing mean for your singleness? Are you taking opportunity in your singleness to serve the church like Paul talks about for single? Are you finding contentment in Christ where he has you currently? What does decreasing mean for your parenting or even maybe your grandparenting? Is Jesus the central figure in your home? Is he spoken about and worshiped openly? Or is he an afterthought that comes up around the table on a Sunday? Is he only mentioned when you come to church? In your parenting, do you offer consistent biblical discipline and correction? You go on here. What does decreasing mean for your work or for your recreation? What does decreasing mean in light of G, or what does decreasing in light of Jesus mean for your finances, or for your eating habits, or for your golf game? What does it mean for your summer plans or your lawn care? What does it mean for your neighborliness, 
What does it mean for the care of your aging parents or your social media habits or your streaming services or your online shopping? Friends, there is nothing that should not be touched by this truth. This is just a start. You can ask this question about anything you do or any role that you have. Am I reflecting Jesus in this area of my life? Is the way that I define success as Jesus increasing and I reflect him instead of myself? Is success defined for, the, for you by decreasing to show Jesus is supreme? If Jesus is who he says he is, friends, this, this gospel is so laced with this truth. If Jesus is who he says he is, then we can't go on living like the world. If Jesus is who he says he is, we must decrease and he must increase. It would be pathological to say anything different. It would be insanity to say that we should continue in and be recognized when the one who is supreme over all things When that one we know through God's word. So we must decrease and he must increase. Let me just make this comment about verse 36 where John writes, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This feels like a tack on here, but I think it's tied in very intimately with the rest of this text. Because... Getting out of the way and decreasing is trust. Getting out of the way and decreasing is a recognition that Jesus is all that we need and that I don't need anything but him. If we are nothing and we have nothing, it shows that everything we have and all we are is in Christ. And that's more than we'll ever realize, ever know. And he is more than we'll ever realize, friends. And the truth that I want you to go with is that whoever believes in the Son decreases to reflect him. That is the one who has eternal life. Let's pray.